Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Annie Flamstead with me. Annie is the founder and CEO of Inspire Tech, a Brisbane-based tech company that is passionate about individuals' wellness. Through her own experience as an athlete, she launched the Inspire Sport mobile app in February 2019, and in 2020, she launched the Growth Studio for administrators and coaches. She's an advocate for holistic well-being, putting people above all else. You can't have a healthy body without a healthy mind. By implementing these core beliefs, Inspire Tech is driving positive human behavior change, creating the game changes of tomorrow. A great intro. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about our chat today. Oh, uh, me too. I would like to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your own journey, a little bit of an overview. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. I listen to this podcast all the time, so it's a bit surreal to be honest. But yeah, so my professional background is, is is exciting for me at the moment. But if I take it back a few years. So I started gymnastics when I was six, and, and by the time I was 10, I was training 30 hours a week. It very quickly became my life, my family's life, everyone's life. And it's interesting because my journey with mental illness and anxiety and eating disorder, it started at a very, very young age, but it didn't like formally start until my early 20s, I would say, in terms of diagnosis and actually getting the support that I needed. So my journey's been quite interesting, I would say. Probably not unique in that, you know, the eating disorder started for me as a very much like a safety behavior. It very much, gymnastics is an aesthetic sport, so there was definitely that body image component that played into it. I went to a all-girls private school, which would have played into it as well. And so I think there was a lot of like contributing factors, but for me, it really started as anxiety. Like I started getting scared about going to school, eating certain foods, certain foods making me feel sick. And all of a sudden, these sort of rules and rituals just became my life. And when you're an elite gymnast or an elite athlete of any kind, your sport is your safe place. Excessive exercise and excessive training isn't really unusual or it's not really seen as unusual. And so, yeah, my coping mechanisms for everything, whether it was personal life, stress at school, sport, body image, whatever was going on was don't eat or eat less or eat this or eat that and, and exercise. 
So I guess it started there um, and, and sort of my pathway to diagnosis is definitely an interesting one and, and I'm sure we'll get into that today, but uh, it's it's really come to a head, I guess, in my 20s, which is um, one of the first stereotypes that I guess I'd love to unpack because everyone thinks of eating disorders as, you know, the 14, 15-year-old girl who wants to be skinny and, and that's part of it. But I, I, I think that there's a lot of people like me out there that that's probably not the key driver. And I mean, this is exactly what this podcast is about, right? Getting rid of all those myths and stigma around eating disorders that people feel that eating disorders have a look, that they are only for thin, rich, white girls who are young, mm. right? And we, we know that eating disorders don't discriminate and they can affect any anybody at any time. And I think that's so, so, so important. For those people out there listening today that have no experience with eating disorders, how would you describe it to someone? Like, what does it feel like when you're absolutely in the thick of your eating disorder and it's raging? It is such a strange feeling. And I can, I've only really recently, um, since I met you, Mills, actually been able to identify this feeling because it's like, it's like a good pain that you know is killing you. But it's so addictive and you know it is so bad for you. So, when I was younger, I couldn't differentiate the feeling. I would just think, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go for a run. And, or it would be very reactive. And then as I matured and as my brain matured, it became like, I need it. I, oh, my God, it feels so good to be so in control, followed by these immense feelings of guilt and immense feelings of I know better than this, especially for myself. Like I've been in, on the recovery journey, the highs and lows of it for a very long time you know, see my GP this afternoon because my blood test results are not so good all of a sudden. So for me, it's it's like, it's such a weird feeling. And I, I think people struggle to admit that it feels good and you know it's bad at the same time. And it just feels like this never ending battle of like, do I want to get better or do I not? Like, what's my life going to be like without my eating disorder? And the hard part about it is that the deeper you get into the eating disorder, the harder it is to realize that those thoughts aren't helpful. So it's like this constant, I like to call it like the revolving wheel, right? And you just feel like I'm, I don't know if you've watched Grey's Anatomy and she talks about you know, Meredith's mum is like, you, you know, you can't get off the merry-go-round, the merry-go-round never stops spinning. That's yeah. how I would explain the feeling of an eating disorder when you want to recover, but you really don't want to at the same time. I think for those people that have never experienced it, you know, like if you pass an exam, right? And you, you're doing really well in, an, in a subject at school or uni. And you're like, awesome, this is great. And then the next semester you fail. And you're like, what the hell? And you know what you have to do to get better. But imagine if someone took away all of your books and all of your means to study. So you knew what you needed to do to improve your results and be better, but you physically couldn't do it. The eating disorder sometimes feels like that. You know what you have to do. You know what you should do. But it feels like there's literally like a physical force stopping you from doing it. Mm. And I think that would be like the most frustrating feeling for me. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a really non-glamorous side of it too. Like you feel sick, you have terrible bowels, you become intolerant to foods you love, you become antisocial, you become a brilliant liar. And for someone like me, like I hate lying to people. So you feel so like you're living just so misaligned to your values. And, you know, especially for me in my career. It's a very confronting dynamic. Mm. Well, the manipulation and the lies 
just, when I think back to it, it just floors me the lengths I went to to manipulate and lie about things. And it's, and mm-hmm. I think it's just so heartbreaking because it's so misaligned with our values, our true core values and what we stand for. Yet you, it just becomes so automatic when you're in the depths of, of your eating disorder. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. And I think like, it's interesting because I see the most amazing GP that everyone in the space would know her, Dr. Barron. She's brilliant. Um, and I, I would say she's probably the single most important person in my recovery journey because she just calls it how it is. She's not afraid to say that it is. It's literally like being on the edge of a whitewater rapid cliff. And if you are okay with living your life there and the revolving door of possible admissions, then you probably shouldn't recover. But most people with eating disorders are not okay with that. Like we're very perfectionistic, high achieving people. And, you know, she told me when I first started seeing her, you, this is your superpower. It's just being used in a very negative way right now. And that is frustrating. That is very frustrating. Absolutely. But as you said, like before, you're like, it just feels like, you know, there's, you're powerless, you don't have the power, but the, the reality of it is you do. And I think mm. the one of the most pivotal things for me in my recovery was learning that I actually held the power. And so I could choose whether I fueled that eating disorder, whether I poured more fuel onto that fire and let it rage, or I actually stopped fueling it and eventually let that fire burn out. And mm. I think that is really, really empowering. And also knowing that we can channel our traits that perfectionism, that overachieving, that determination, we can channel that all into recovery, not into our eating disorder. Exactly. And I think also a a trap that a lot of us fall into is channeling it into other things and just almost pushing the eating disorder aside and going, I'm okay to stay here. And I think that's been something really, really interesting for me. Like, you know, to your question about what does it feel like? And, you know, to say you've got like a a misalignment in values, I would argue it doesn't feel different to... Uh, but a much more intense and life-threatening version of really wanting to reach for that 3 p.m. chocolate or that that coffee before bed because you really like it, it's going to stop you from falling asleep that night. You know you're going to get the sugar crash. And, and it's, I would honestly liken it to that feeling. And that's such a, you know, if you eat the chocolate when you don't want to eat the chocolate because, you know, you're going to have a sugar crash at the office and you don't want to have a sugar crash, nothing to do with weight or shape or size. You literally just know it's not going to make you feel good. The guilt that you feel if you do have that chocolate, knowing you're going to feel crap, is like how people with eating disorders feel all the time. Because you feel guilty if you don't engage in recovery behaviors, like three meals, three snacks, a protein, a carbon, a fat at every meal. You feel guilty if you don't do that, if you've made the decision to recover, because you're like, oh man, I know what I need to do. Mm. But then in the early days of recovery, if you do that, you feel guilty too, because your eating disorder is just like, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. And it's constantly just like bouncing from one thing to the next. I think it's really interesting. People ask me all the time, what does it feel like? And people, you know, throw around comments and I don't blame them because the weight loss industry is so toxic. And I, I have staff that say to me, man, I wish I could just have a little bit of your eating disorder, like just a little bit of your control. And I'm like, I wish that I could go back to not wanting any of it because that's all it starts with. A lot of people develop eating disorders by trying to be healthy or by following that diet plan. And if you've got the wrong slash right genetics and the right predispositions and you're in the right ecosystem, like, bang, eating disorder. And I think one of the most common misconceptions is like, if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, you can't have an eating disorder because you're super successful in business. I'd be like, no, no, no. I have an eating disorder because I'm super successful in business or vice versa, you know, like it, people think that 
eating disorders mean you cannot do anything. So you, mm. we've got so many, I believe, high-functioning people out there with eating disorders and similarly probably with alcoholism, drug addiction, and they don't get help because they don't seem like the type of person who would have an eating disorder. And that, I think, has been really challenging for me, even seeking help, let alone accessing it. There are so many people out there with functioning eating disorders and they are functioning at a high, high level. And yeah, you're definitely not on an anomaly there, my love. Have there been moments where you felt hopeless along the journey? Like, how have you kept that hope alive to keep striving for full recovery? Like, on the really, really dark days, it really comes down to, like, my core values. And it's one question of, do I want to wake up every single day feeling like this? And the answer is always no. So even when I'm in the depths of the eating disorder and I've lost all hope, the one thing I can come back to is, am I okay with this? And the answer is no. And that's because I've, I've, through my therapy with anxiety and with my current career, which I'll elaborate on a little bit in a second, but I've always been able to kind of ground myself by coming back to, am I okay with that? So for example, if I have to, if I've got an employee that's really disrupting the culture of the business, but they're bringing in heaps of revenue for our company, I'm not okay with that because one of my values in business is to have people who are aligned or adding to the culture of the company. So that's how I make the hard decisions. And so when I'm in the depths of the eating disorder and I've lost hope, it's a really hard decision. Like it's so much easier to just go for a run and not show up to my doctor's appointment. That would be very easy. But the only thing that stops us from doing that is, am I okay with that? Am I okay with that behavior? And I guess it's very easy to push people away with an eating disorder and it's very scary to let them in. But letting people in and not pushing them away gives you a, a stronger reason to hold on to hope. You know, I don't want my family to be to be sad and worried I don't want my fiance to to have to think can we get pregnant I like as my life has developed I've had to start to develop stronger values and I think that's probably been the the only thing that's helped me hold on to hope on those really really dark days and then to be completely frank my career has a huge part of that and I would really argue and I know it's a bit of a topic in the eating disorder community of like should you stop work and uni and and stressful things to recover and sometimes that's absolutely required but if you can find a balance with support and recovery whilst having some other motivation outside of your eating disorder I find that's a really strong motivator and especially at Inspire Tech when I'm losing hope I go far out would I tell any of my staff or my users or my customers to do what I'm doing to myself right now And the answer is always no. Mm. Um, I think having a career that's aligned to the values of recovery has been something that's really helped me hold on to hope, which is cool to recognize because there's definitely days I I hate my job. (laughs) Mm. You talk about your family. How has your eating disorder affected your relationship with your family and with your fiancé? Yeah, as a young, like as a teenager, I didn't affect it at all because I I just hit it. No one had any idea. Like I, I was really struggling and the the doctors were saying there was something wrong but it's ironic because I didn't have a cessation of a menstrual cycle so I didn't fit the diagnostic criteria at the time so I was diagnosed with anxiety but not with an eating disorder so back then um, it more so affected my relationship with my family in the simple ways that they were just worried about me a lot so what are you doing where are you going And, and that would then as a teenager, I'd be like, why are you asking me that? I don't want to know. Like, you know, it was tense. But again, like, you know, being an elite athlete, it was, I was in the gym 40 hours a week. So no one really knew, like, 40 hours of the week, no one was monitoring me. And the ones that were, were 
for lack of a term, encouraging of the eating disorder without knowing it. Pretty cultural issue in gymnastics. That's, that's getting better. In my 20s, so the first time I was actually diagnosed with anorexia nervosa was when I was 24. It was only two years ago. And I'd been struggling for, for, for years and years and years. And that diagnosis, I think, was quite relieving for the family, but terrifying. With my fiancé, like, he's amazing. I, I can tell him when I've lied to him. So that's been a big part of keeping us solid, is I can say, how I told you I was going for a walk while I actually went for a run. And he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. We talk it through and we manage it. So I think that relationship has been protected by the type of person that he is and the type of relationship that we've built. But with my family and my friends, it, it's definitely been challenging. The biggest thing is I'm such a social butterfly and it's stopped me from going to family things. It's stopped me from enjoying cooking and food and wine with my, my uncle who's a winemaker and things like that. So I think it's affected it probably more like, you know, extrinsic ways as opposed to like massive family breakdowns and stuff. I definitely think though the trust has been damaged and, and is still being redeveloped. Like I'm 26 and, and my beautiful mum will still ask me if I've had lunch and they know when I get stressed that it's likely I'm going to slip back into ED behaviours. And so that's really frustrating to me. But as I get older, it's just saddening because I'm like, whoa, like without even realising it, I've really lost some trust in the people that I love the most. Um, but talking to them and being honest with them it has been the only thing to start to repair that, saying, hey, like, mm. I know this worries you, but I can't eat that right now. So what are we going to do about it? Am I going to have a sausage in? What are we doing? Like having a very collaborative approach has been good, but having been able to have to own that is something I'm very grateful for. I know that some people don't have that support within their family to feel the confidence to have those conversations, you know. Mm. Mm. Honesty is so, so key. And that rebuilding of trust can take years, but it absolutely can happen. And I think I know so many families that have become so much stronger and closer through the eating disorder journey because it takes you to places that you would never dream of going as a family. And I think to be, you know, harsh, the eating disorder probably wants me to believe it hasn't affected my relationships at all or my career at all or my life at all. But I definitely know when I'm in a a state of being very cognizant of how I'm actually feeling that it absolutely has. Uh, and I think that's one of the traps of an eating disorder. You you think your life is so much better with it until you don't have it and you go, well, how did I not see how unhappy I was? How did I not see the impact this was having on my family? Yeah. Now, there were some situations that you think should have been handled differently during your time as a gymnast that contributed to the development of your eating disorder, weren't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the biggest one was like I I know some coaches in all sports, uh, ballet, gymnastics, diving, and even sports like netball and hockey and weightlifting where there's a weight category and stuff like that. I think there's definitely cases where it, it's really enforced that you should lose weight and we want you to be as thin as possible. I was fortunate that in my case that actually wasn't the case. I had great coaches. What was wrong was that I don't think they were educated at all enough, let alone at all, in eating disorders. So, for example, or disordered eating behaviors. So, for example, language like my coach is saying that was a really heavy landing to a 14-year-old that's got an eating disorder is catastrophic, right? Mm. So, that was bad. The culture of turning a blind eye and assuming that just because their body fat's really low because they're an elite athlete, like that was, you know, the female athlete triad was spoken about like it was just, oh, yeah, like if you don't have your period, that's, that's normal. So, things I think were 
whilst they weren't direct, like no one said, you're fat, you need to lose weight, you should stop eating. It was just this like cultural ecosystem of like it being swept under the rug and even just sort of being okay. Like the conversation around the talk bucket when we're getting ready for weigh-ins was, are you going to go to the bathroom? And like that was for some girls, yeah, I'm going to go to the bathroom because I need to do a wee. But most of us knew it was because we wanted to be as low as we possibly could on the scale. So you throw your food up, you take laxatives, you do whatever. And that wasn't considered disordered. That was just normal. And it is not normal at all. So I think that was a big issue. I think education back to the athlete as well. Like I didn't know what an eating disorder was. I didn't know that skipping meals was bad. And I tried every diet under the sun, orthorexia, anorexia, bulimia, like all of those those now diagnostic and things that people talk about. I'm sure people knew about them back then. It was only like 10 years ago, but no one was identifying it. It's almost like people didn't want to admit that that was going on. And if they didn't admit it and they turned a blind eye, okay, if they get very, very sick, they'll be put in hospital. And I think the danger zone in sport is that, as you know, I was saying before about the Whitewater Rapids, that danger zone, you can sit there for years. And I have. Like, I am still there. I was an elite gymnast and I went to uni, right? And I was getting straight sevens and sometimes I got fours and failures. But, you know, I was doing well and I was confident and I had friends and I had a boyfriend and now I run this global health tech company but I've still been just sitting on the edge of those whitewater rapids. And so I think in my days as a gymnast, it was that that was made to be okay. It was like, mm, well, mm. you're not in hospital being nasogastrically refed, then you can't be that sick. And everyone's heard of the book sick enough, but it's like that in real life practice was probably what I wish was done differently in my time as a young athlete. It just oh, it makes me so angry. That was your experience. I mean, we know that, Gymnastics as a sport is still so rife with eating disorders and body image issues. What would you ultimately like to see change in this space to protect athletes? Here we go. I'm going to plug my own business. No, not really. But I think like a huge part of what we do at Inspire Tech is we monitor the wellness and the behaviors of entire cohorts of young people. So not just elite athletes in sport. There's a lot of monitoring and focus on the health and well-being and performance of elite athletes. And there's definitely a place for that. But by that time, it was too late for me. Like my norm was only eating one meal a day and not having a period and sleeping three hours a night because I was having night sweats because my glucose was so low. It was also normal that my blood glucose would sit at 3.5. Now, those who are listening that don't know what that means, it should be above four at all times. Like four is even lower. My baseline as an elite athlete was terrible. And so when I set up to create Inspire Tech, it was, why are we only looking at the very healthy, the very sick or the very elite? Why are we not looking at people like me that slip through the cracks and most people that slip through the cracks? So I think I'd love to see and what we're driving really hard in Inspire Tech is distributing monitoring services and preventative data analytic services to kids for free within every sport. So our app is completely free. No kid will ever pay for it. The other thing is education. Like, I shouldn't be only, I shouldn't have been only at 24 or 25 learning about the importance of regular, consistent eating. So, educating young people about that. Now, I did have a dietetics degree. Like, I could tell you how many micro and macronutrients you should be having at every meal. But do I then practice that? Well, no, because the skills I learned as a young person was that that doesn't apply to me. So, I think monitoring and education is literally what it's coming back to. 
yes, it'd be great to have more psychologists, more dietitians, more allied health, but if you have to go to a GP to get a diagnosis to then see them, it's still not solving the problem. I think we need to take more of a community approach to like assuming that young people are going to struggle with an eating disorder or anxiety, because even if they don't, they're only going to be better equipped for later in life, right? So I think that's a pretty negative thing to say, but if we assume the worst rather than the best, I think that's when we'll start to see change. And so a big thing for me inside into my tech and outside, like in the medical landscape is let's stop only and like actioning things when it is in a crisis. Let's actually work on prevention. Let's work on education and let's work on protection. Like how can we actually, if we assume the stats better than me, but let's say one in whatever young people are going to develop some kind of body image or disordered eating struggle in their life, let's double that and future-proof the next generation of kids coming through. Because there's never been something wrong with being armed with the skills to, to better cope with life. I mean, we've seen it in the last 12 months or two years, pandemic, a war, a recession probably, so much stressful shit going on in the world. And then why would it not be, why would it be a bad thing to be better prepared for that? So I think monitoring and actually doing something with the data, like it's all very well to say, oh my God, so many people have eating disorders. It's cool. What are we doing about it? Mm. And I think the only way to do that is to access masses from a preventative and educational perspective. Mm, and I think I love what you say about like prevention through prediction, right? Mm. I mean, that I remember when we had one of our first phone calls and I was like, that is cool, prevention through prediction because you're so, mm. so right. Yeah, and it's not always like a, for me, if someone was monitoring my behaviours through a gamified app and then comparing that to my medical results, I would have been diagnosed hands down with an eating disorder when I was 15, like no doubt in my mind. And I'll, I'll give a really good example, and I'm allowed to share this because I'm very good friends with this with this person and, and her family. She was using our app. She was an athlete, and uh, she was just burnt out and tired, and her coach was saying to one of our customer success managers, I'm really worried about this young athlete, but she's telling me she's fine. Like, she's, she's telling me she's fine. And LCS said, you know, tell the uh, request that the mother takes her to the doctor and see if there's anything clinical going on. And so obviously we don't diagnose anything at Inspiretech. We refer out. So he said to send her to the doctor. The doctor said, look, it's a bit underweight. Like, you know, she's, she's very fit, but she's an athlete, like a teenage girl. Like, I just think she's literally what was said to my family. Like, yeah, so she's all right. Like, recurring bouts of tonsillitis. She's probably got glandular fever. Like, you know, just look at everything else. Treat her for anxiety. Here's the medication. And I actually got wind of this. And I don't usually get involved with our customer success side of things. But I said, no, like, one step further, asked the coach to print out her behavior. So all we were tracking on her on the app was pain, sleep, fatigue, and nutrition wasn't calories or anything. It was just healthy, not so healthy or skipped. Like we weren't even doing food diaries. So I had no idea of the caloric intake of this young person. I had no idea of her weight or her height or her BMI. But I looking at her behaviors, her mood was getting worse, her sleep was getting worse, her fatigue was getting worse. She was getting more pain around her abdomen and her gastrointestinal area. And she was skipping like seven meals a week. And that was, you know, the only one she was telling the app about, right? So with that anonymous data, I was able to say, look, I don't know if she's got an eating disorder, but there's definitely something going on here. Now, that coach printed that out, gave it to the parent. The parent took it to the GP, same GP, with that data. 48 hours later, she had a psych review, a dietetics review, and she was in hospital, not only just 
like in hospital, but being nasogastrically refed. Now, she had a normal BMI if you just look at BMI. Her heart rate was probably low, but she's an athlete, so they didn't think about it. She had all these clinical markers, but until they looked at her behavior, they weren't able to actually predict what was going on. And so I started to think about what could we do if that was six months earlier, if we started picking up on issues with her, but if we were able to start to pick up on, yeah, like sleep issues or mood issues or fatigue issues, anything before nutrition, before weight, before BMI, that may not have predicted an eating disorder, but it could have predicted this person is in trouble, what can we do? And we could have escalated support for her faster. So, yeah, that prevention through prediction is literally what keeps me going every single day because we can only do so much with the data that already exists. So it's about what doesn't exist yet. What can we do with that and how can we better prevent these things from? We probably can't, this is a synonym negative thing to say, but we probably we can't stop eating disorders from happening. Just in the same way, we can't stop kids from being bullied at school. But if we monitor it and we intervene earlier, then we can at least hopefully de-escalate the situation from becoming catastrophic. Talk to me about what's unique about your automated intervention algorithm. Oh, I love this. This is literally my pride and joy with InspireTech. So the automated intervention algorithm is actually quite simple. So my, my chief tech officer and our engineering team will be sitting there cringing listening to this right now. Must disclaim, I am not a technical founder. I am very much a, a, a health-focused founder, but I do have an, a brilliant engineering team. So the technical side of it, I will leave out because listeners are probably bored about that as well. But think about Instagram. And I, I have a cool video, which I can share. We could maybe put in the, in the show notes where I actually did a test on myself where I put into Instagram, like Sinspo and like healthy eating and clean eating. So I put search these things. And all of a sudden, my Instagram feed, all I'm getting is pro Anna accounts and like these like recovery accounts that are not actually recovery accounts. You know, what I eat in a day and like, here's my weight gain and weight loss and all that like really, really negative stuff. And lots of stuff around like, giving me tea detoxes and green juices and we've all done it before as we know it feels like you talk about something and all of a sudden google's mode like promoting it to you right but we did that and then i thought okay what happens if we could pick up on words or keywords or trends like skipping meals or heart rate variability through wearables or really really poor mood and instead of either waiting for a coach or a doctor to do something about it or not doing anything, what if instead we actually just automated an intervention that would help that user? So if someone in our app, for example, skips X amount of meals, and I'm not going to say the number because my clinical team needs to allow me to do that, but let's say X, and I don't want to trigger anything, but X amount of meals get skipped in a week, right? Does not diagnose an eating disorder, but it indicates to our clinical algorithm that there's something wrong here. Now, we can automate an intervention at whatever level. So it could be, you know, a survey to then prompt them to get some more support, or it could be a, an educational resource. Just skipping meals. Here's ten reasons why you shouldn't do that, or like something as blunt as that, all the way through to a completely clinically validated intervention. So for someone who's in a crisis, who's in like real medical stability issues, and and really in the depths of their recovery, the automated intervention will be something very specific to that. For example. Whereas if you're just, not just, but if you're a young person using our technology and you, you put in a really poor mood or really, really poor sleep or real, lots of skipped meals, then we'll simply automate a very sort of what we call low intervention intervention, which might be like a podcast like this or a link to a support group or a link to the, you know, a website where they can get some support like Ended or something like that. 
Um, we can also link with telehealth practitioners. So we can link them to an online coach or we can link them to some kind of support. So it's really exciting for us because our social science theory perspective, it's working. Like we're getting more kids using the app because they're like, I put in that I was stressed. I wrote the word bullying into my notes section on the app. And all of a sudden I got this anti-bullying program that's really helped me feel better about myself. All the way through to like from a clinical standpoint, saying this user is skipping heaps of meals. We need to intervene and provide them with some resources. So it's very exciting for us. It's turning heads at big research organizations internationally because we're not trying to replace medical practitioners. We're not trying to replace allied health professionals. What we're trying to do is escalate the support earlier and more streamlined into the hands of the, of the person who's struggling without the delay or without a chance of getting. So it's really exciting. It's something that we're really excited to move into the recovery space because I think it, it, it like I use it at the moment with some of my allied health practitioners to like track my own mood and my own sleep. And even beyond the automated intervention component, it's like, how can we then paint the actual picture of how this person's feeling? So before I go and see my wellness coach or something or a psychologist, I don't have to walk in there and then say, how are you going? And I can say, fine, thanks. They've got all this data and they've got these algorithms that they can automate support for me. So it's really exciting for, I think, obviously the company, but mostly for me from a personal perspective, I think that would have been game-changing for me when I was at the start of this eating disorder. So it would have picked up on things that took years for people to pick up on before. Mm. Oh, it's incredibly exciting. And you're right. It is absolutely game changing. We were chatting the other day and you said that as sports tech becomes more automated, we aren't checking in with how we are really feeling anymore. Talk to me about why that's important. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of sports tech and even health tech companies are going really, really hard down like the wearables and automated biometrics tracking thing like I heard about some company the other day that can put a little microchip in the in the athlete and it does everything like hydration like blood test everything so you want to make sure it was accurate but we're getting more and more further and further away rather from actually thinking about how we're feeling and actually looking inwards and going how do I feel so for us like and for me we don't want to ignore what's going on in the automated biometric we we do integrate with that stuff but I think it's really important that we're teaching young people and adults to actually stop for long enough and think, wait, how did that actually make me feel? Like, it's all very well to say, oh, I slept for eight hours, but is eight hours actually what you need? Did you wake up feeling refreshed? Because your your app might say, well done, eight hours sleep, but you might wake up going, man, I needed 12. So we've built, we've been really conscious to build in a manual component into our platform. And it got questions and alarm bells in the early days until I realized, I showed people research studies that said, you can track the biometrics of someone in hospital, but until you ask them how they feel, you're not actually going to know if that's bothering them. Like someone might be okay with being tired all the time. That might be fine for them, but other people, that might make them really depressed. So I think it's really important for not only like accurate diagnosis and accurate support, but I think most importantly, these days we're constantly told how we should look, how we should feel, how we should think. And unfortunately, innovation sometimes can make that worse because we don't have to think, we don't have to feel. Um, and a huge part of recovery for me, even when I first ever reached out to you, Milk, was actually sitting there and going, I don't feel good. You know, my life on, on, on Instagram and everything is awesome. I run this global tech company. I've got a great fiance. My life's great. 
but shit, I'm exhausted and I, I don't think this is sustainable. That was what got me to reach out for support. So I think that's why actually thinking about how you feel is so important. Got to feel your feelings. You can't suppress mm. them, you can't numb them, you can't run on that adrenaline and keep achieving and be this sort of shining star on the outside when really internally you are crumbling because at the end of the day, at some point you're going to break. And I think that's a really good point, though, because it's okay to feel shit sometimes. There's a difference between feeling really bad and clinically struggling with a mental or physical illness. When you drink too much fizzy water and you get a tummy ache, that's a very different feeling to genuinely having. And I think we, we do a really poor job um, these days as a generally like insane, high-paced, high-functioning world and actually stopping for long enough and going, all right, maybe I'm just having a really bad day. Maybe I'm just tired. Maybe I am just stressed. And, and that's been a big thing for me. Like, am I stressed and am I struggling with work or am I in the depths of a relapse of my eating disorder? And until you stop and feel that, you can't delineate. And I think what happens is, both ways, we either sweep it under the rug and go, I'm just tired, I'm just stressed, I'm just not eating because I'm stressed or I feel sick or whatever, and that can be catastrophic. But it can also be catastrophic the other day, other way. Like if you are starting to recover and you just happen to have a bad day, it's not all doom and gloom. You don't have to think you've gone back to square one. You know, sometimes it's okay to just feel bad. However, other times you need to be really cognizant of that and, and put things in place to help yourself feel better. So yeah, I think thinking and actually thinking and then one step further, as you said, actually going that next step of feeling, that's still something I'm trying to master. <laughs> Launching Inspire Tech while still in recovery must have been incredibly challenging. How have you navigated that? A couple of things. When I first started Inspire Tech, my main struggle was anxiety and panic attacks. As it started to scale, that's when I had a full-blown relapse into the ED, and that's when I got that diagnosis. It was confronting because at first, I was so embarrassed, I didn't want to tell anyone. A huge part of Inspire Tech, from my anxiety perspective, was that people loved that I'd had anxiety. People loved that I spoke about taking anti-anxiety medication really candidly. People really loved that I had a lived experience. But all of a sudden, that lived experience was alive in, like, real-time experience. It was no longer, oh, yeah, I had anxiety or an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors as an athlete, which is what fueled the development of InspireTech. And it very quickly became, oh, no, 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 I have that. And so admitting that to people was really challenging. I think what was probably the biggest challenge was coming to terms with it myself. Even to this day, I sit there going, I am such a fraud. Like the imposter syndrome is so real because we're literally helping hundreds of thousands of people struggling with mental illness and eating disorders. And I'm sitting here running this show going, hey, guys, sorry, I'm just going to go have my weekly ECG because I'm not medically stable right now. And that was really, really confronting and still is to this day. I think how I've navigated it is exactly what I've just done then. Like, I was so scared to tell investors and my staff and my team what I was going through because I thought they would think, oh, my God, she's crazy. She can't run this company. But in actual fact, it's what allowed me to run this company so well. Not the disordered eating side, but the attachment and the connection to the problem that we're solving. So every single day, I have to make a conscious choice to eat my bowl of porridge, not replace my bowl of porridge with a black coffee in a Zoom meeting. Because I know that if I don't, I'm not going to be able to do my job very well. But also, I don't, as I said at the start, that's not in line to my values. And so... On the hard days with the company, I think about, well, I'm still struggling with this eating disorder. And so I do this so that no other young person has to feel like this. And on the hard days with the eating disorder, I think, 
wow, the company really needs me because there's never, it doesn't matter what you're going through. If you have a detachment to the problem that you're solving, either through your line of work or through your company, or even just through some volunteer work, you're going to do a better job at it. You're going to be more connected to it. And that's why you, Mills, like you have such a different can of worms to anyone else in the space, obviously, other than the ones who have lived experience. But I can say stuff to you and be like, I know this is crazy, but this is how I'm feeling. And I know that you're going to go, yeah, I know that is crazy because I used to do that too. So I think it's been really challenging. I've had to take time off to have care. I've had to put things around me that if I didn't have an eating disorder, I may not have had to do. When you're in recovery, like you feel shit sometimes and it's tough and you have bad days and you have good days. You have to have hours in your week for therapy. The only way I've managed that is just by telling people. And you know, it's been really quite empowering because um, I was I proved myself and hopefully I'm proving listeners wrong that our company has grown every single quarter. We're like kicking insane goals. Whilst I've been not only in the depths of my first bout of a diagnosing disorder, but two relapses, multiple different tries, attempts at recovery. I there was <laughs> there's a book, I'm writing a book called This Will Be a Book One Day. And most of it is me saying I'm sitting on a plane, really struggling to eat this, like this cheese and crackers because the eating disorder is so loud. And I'm literally going to pitch to like one of the country's biggest venture capital funds. Like, and it's just this, like you read on the paper and you're like, well, like you can actually do all of these things and struggle with an eating disorder. I think, you know, I guess it's it's a very big question and there's a lot I can add to it. But at the end of the day, like I know that if I recover, I will imagine what we could do then. That's all I can kind of Exactly. I said that to you the other day. I was like, yeah. just imagine. And the eating disorder, and I'm sure some listeners or parents of listeners, like parents who have, have, have connections with eating disorders and things like that, the temptation is to go, well, I am successful, so what's the point? But the point is, I don't even know what that's going to feel like. So for those of you listening that are kind of deciding, oh, is it worth it, is it not? I can't sit here and say that I've completely recovered and that it's worth it, but I can say that I've, I've, I'm dipping my toe very much in that water and it's starting to feel very exciting because I think that we don't really understand what our potential is. Mm. And the eating disorder loves that. The eating disorder loves oh, that. Oh, yeah. Thrives so on it. Yeah, like, oh, you're so, everything's so fine. It's like, well, hold on. Your definition of fine is backwards. <laughs> backward is like a very, yeah, there were stronger words that I would use, but yes, yeah. backward, it does, does explain it, definitely. What's yeah. next for Inspire Tech? So what's next for Inspire Tech is to have a founder and CEO that is free of an eating disorder. Yes. That's in our six-month plan. And six-month plan is, uh, it sounds like a long time or a short time, but remember, this is a five-year journey, so... That's a huge thing that, that myself, my board, my investors, everyone is committing to, which is great because I've got their support. From a business standpoint, though, so we will be, so tech companies are usually not hugely profitable. They just have this growth at all cost mentality, keep raising money, keep growing, like the whole Silicon Valley mindset. With the current capital markets, we've made a decision to actually have that non-linear growth that we've been experiencing, but be profitable at the same time. So we're on our track to profitability by Christmas, which is a huge achievement for us because like we haven't, like most, like we only raised our first big round of funding last year and that's pretty rare to get profitable so quickly. So super excited about that from a business standpoint, a hundred thousand users by Christmas, which is big, but most importantly, our shift this year from sports tech only to health tech means that we're now hopefully being able to move into the eating disorder space. So being able to offer the skeleton of what we've developed at Inspire Tech 
to people who are struggling in ways that we haven't been able to help before. And uh, that's something that I think Nils, you and I could probably say to the listeners, watch this space because we're, so yeah, I think that, and, and look, we're on a mission to change 5 million by June 30 next year. So huge growth ap- um, aspirations. And when I say change, that might be just getting someone to eat one extra snack that day, you know, or it might be giving the confidence to that young boy to ask for some help because he's feeling anxious. Um, so I think, yeah, big, big impact goals is, is one side of it and then commercial goals as well. But the eating disorder stuff I'm so excited for and I've been like test casing it on myself and we've got a lot of work to do on it, but I think it could be quite powerful. Mm. You and me both, sister. What's this place? So, so exciting. What do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment in Australia? Okay, big question, Mel. Big question. So the I'm very all for big questions, Annie. You know that. <laughs> I love big questions. We are small, short people, but we have big questions. Let's talk medical first. I really want more beds. I really want more critical care help. I want that to be more accessible by having more of it, but I also want the criteria for accessing that to be reevaluated. I think we need to scrap BMI and things like that because I have met some girls in inpatient facilities that are on medical wards and they should be in the psych wards, but because they are not a certain weight, they don't qualify. I think the diagnosis for accessing clinically like required care for medical stability and psychiatric stability needs to be reevaluated. And that's something I will continue to discuss publicly because I was very fortunate and unfortunate at the same time, but I didn't get a diagnosis until very late in my life. And that I think was because of that somatic. I also think, yeah, more beds, which is, you know, a no-brainer in the public and private sector. I think Medicare is great uh, in terms of the eating disorder plans and that kind of thing, but I do think we need a little bit more off behind them, like a little bit more access to treatment. I think we need to shorten the gap between the limited amount of publicly funded eating disorder help and the exorbitant of privately funded eating disorder help. So like I know one clinic I looked at going to and I even, you know, was in a fortunate position where I could afford to go there $150,000 for six weeks. Now, what happens after that? What happens if I need to go back? What happens to those that can't afford that? And then the other option is medically ticking the box of a, of a public bed or whatever. So I think that all needs a big overhaul. I think in the meantime, what I would really hope for in the eating disorder space is more conversations like this, more people talking candidly about it, more people coming out and saying, hey, I'm an actress that is all over the news and I have an eating disorder. Or I don't look like I have an eating disorder, but I have an eating disorder. I think awareness of how sneaky they are and how common they are is really important. And I also think that industry bodies seem to be trying to work against each other for solutions, right, especially in recovery. And that doesn't make any sense to me. If you're genuinely working towards the same goal, then why are we not working together? So I think collaborative approach in the medical sector and the real, like, you know, medical stability and psychiatric area, the diagnosis, the technology solutions like InspireTech, the community-based fundraisers, the organizations that are more wellness-focused. I think if we were to collaborate more, then we would prevent a lot of escalation and also provide help to a lot more people. So it's a very loaded answer, I know, and I wish I could call a spade a spade a bit more, but I think listeners will, will hear it in my voice that, we're actually doing, we're doing better 
But when yeah. you're doing a very good job. Yeah, we've when got a way to go. But yeah, yeah. and you're right, collaboration is key. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, so key. What has been the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? <laughs> wow. I think that the most powerful thing it's taught me is that, like, exactly what we were touching on before, you can have every single box ticked materialistically or on the surface. But if you are not living aligned to your values and living in a way that serves you, you're just going to be a shell of yourself and your potential. So I think I haven't achieved it yet, and I can I can openly say that. But I think when I do reach that point in recovery where I'm like, well, this is what it feels like, I think I'll realize that I only got there by realizing and actually thinking about how it feels. So being aware of it. And I think like understanding your potential and understanding what you can achieve, it sounds twisted because I haven't achieved it yet. And I hope that when I'm in full recovery, I can sit here and say, yeah, like that, that, that potential I didn't even knew I had, I got there. Right now, I feel like I'm, I've had a taste for it. And so I think it's, it's a lesson I can take into the rest of my, my, my life, right? Like in a relationship, if you're trying to build a solid relationship. There's no use in just being flaky. If you're struggling with something, tell that person, hey, I can't make it to that party. Like own your shit and realize the potential you've got if you do that. I think that's probably been at this stage the most valuable. And the other thing is, I'm giving, I'm giving you two answers, sorry, Mel, but there are so many people out there feeling the way that I'm feeling or that have felt the way that I'm feeling. And there's people out there that don't know that that's how they're feeling, that really need me to tell them that it's okay. And there's people out there that do, that are able to tell me that it's okay. So eating disorders make you very insular, they make you very, very self-centered and in a way you don't mean to, not necessarily in a selfish way, but realizing that there's other people out there on this journey with you it's probably one of the things that's gotten me through the darkest days and that's so replicable in every every area of your life as well right my sister's about to have a baby and um you know she's so anxious there's so much going on for her it's the first time she's ever had a baby she's never been no one's prepared you cannot prepare someone for that but having people going through it with her and remembering that people have gone through it before her has been extremely grounding to her and it's like when I bring on new stuff I say the same thing like it's really daunting, but remember, everyone in this company has had a birthday before. So let's talk about that. Let's help you through that. So I think those are probably the two most valuable lessons, but I would love to say, can I like secure what on this podcast in six months when I'm fully recovered? And then I can re-answer that question. Because it's I'm a date, assuming, girlfriend. It's a date. Assuming I'll have more positive stuff to share then as well. And in your opinion, what are the best ways that people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? Yeah, you already feel, I think acknowledging that the person who's going through the eating disorder already feels really embarrassed and down and disheartened by what they're going through. Even on the days where they're in it and they're like, this feels so good, I'm, like, I'm killing it. They, they actually still, they already feel a lot of shame. And it's a real human instinct when someone does something to hurt themselves, like restrict meals or overexercise or purge or self-harm. It's the human instinct is to go, oh, why did you do that? Or come on, better than that. But that's been really harmful for me because I sit there going, I know, like, I already feel shit enough about this. You don't have to remind me. So I think the most helpful thing is when people who maybe haven't experienced it or don't understand it before don't really, don't necessarily try, but just be cognizant that how you react can dictate what their next move is. If they constantly feel like they're letting you down, 
that's not helpful to get them out of those negative behaviors because they're going to go, what's the point? Whereas if you say, like, I'm really proud of you for telling me that that's what you did or that's how you feel or I'm, I'm really sorry that's happened, let's talk about it, is exactly the same thing as, oh, my God, why did you do that? Let's go have a sandwich. Like, it's pretty much saying the same thing, but it's saying it in a way that is helpful to the person that's struggling. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is, is people forget how much as a society we talk about diet culture. And I think that should be illegal. I think it should be as bad as like a swear word. I did a couple of swear words, but a really bad swear word or a really derogatory term. Like, you know, I'll be walking around my own office and myself know what I've gone through. And they'll be like, oh, I had a really big breakfast, so I'm just not going to eat for two days. And I'm like, okay, well, on what planet would you say that in front of someone with an eating disorder? But it's like, it's so ingrained in us as a society to talk about diet culture and fasting and all this stuff. And I think that to someone who's on the edge of an eating disorder or someone who is recovering can be catastrophic. So I think being really cognizant of your, how you're talking about food, how you're talking about weight, shape, and size. And if you don't know, then just don't talk about it. Just do not talk about what you ate. It's not that important. Like mm-hmm. I have friends who are like, oh, I had a green smoothie breakfast. I'm like, didn't need to know that. Like you did not need to tell me that. And so I think being cognizant, I think we can all do that. Even people who are in recovery need to be mindful of what stage someone may be at without you even knowing. And that's, you know, to any mental illness. Do you want to say, oh my God, I'm so anxious if you're not, because that person who's sitting there who genuinely is about to internally combust a panic attack, that's just downplaying it and they may not reach out for help. So I think those would be the two biggest things. Be careful how you react to self-harm or shameful disordered eating behaviors because they really need to be reminded that it's okay and we're going to do something about it. And then, yeah, just cut, cut talk about eating and food if you don't believe it's helpful. The opposite is, oh my gosh, I just had the most wholesome, nourishing lunch. You can say that and I'm, I'm, I'm so satisfied with how good it was. If that's how you want to talk about food, awesome. That's helpful. That's great. But not this like flyaway comments. I think they can be really damaging. So damaging. So more damaging than people can even begin to comprehend. And this is why younger and younger individuals develop eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Now, finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? Wisdom. I'm not full of too much wisdom. I like to be pretty blunt. I think it would be... Give me some blunt words of wisdom, Annie. Come on. I'm going to give you some blunt words of wisdom. Don't half-bake your recovery. You either choose not to recover, and that's your choice, or you choose to recover. And I can say that because I am right on that, like, seesaw right now. And that is not only tough for you and it doesn't get you anywhere, but it breaks your family's heart because they know and your friends and everything. And it just limits your potential so much because you're not not recovering, but you're not recovering. And it's I've been in that position for two years now. And, yeah, I'm okay, but I'm not great. And so... I'm watching it just become more and more frustrating for my family and more and more ingrained in my everyday behavior because I haven't made that 100% commitment to recover. So I would, this is blunt, but if you're not ready to do it, then don't. Start talking about it and start seeking support when you're ready to do it. And I know, Mills, that that's something you and I have spoken about. And it's, what, six months since we had our first conversation? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm actually ready now. And it's nothing different. Like, nothing at all is different. You're never going to get to the right way. You're never going to get to the point where you think recovery is going to be easy. It's never, ever 
ever going to be that easy. You genuinely have to make the choice. I want to do this and I'm going to do it. And then be able to be honest with your support network. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it. And they'll help you or not, but you you just can't sit on the fence. And that might sound pretty cynical and negative, but for those listening, like I'm with you on that fence. And I've taken that that step to recover. And does that mean I, I won't go, oh, this, oh, oh my God, this is crazy. It's not never going to be a straight line journey. But I would say that's probably the most wisdom I've got at this stage when it comes to an eating disorder. On the other hand, people with anxiety and OCD, which I have both of those things, my, my words of wisdom there are you are going to have to embrace it. Like you are going to have to learn to manage your anxiety your whole life because you're never going to know what life throws at you. And so one thing that I've learned from in my anxiety perspective and my other mental health sort of journey is it's okay for it to be really, really challenging sometimes and just accept that that's who you are but don't accept that it's okay for it to control your life. So like, for example, like I have, I can say I've been sober from panic attacks for about 12 months. I have not had one. And that doesn't mean I don't get anxious. It just means that I've accepted that's an area of my life I have to get in control of. I think that's probably my wisdom. You are truly incredible. This pocket rocket powerhouse (laughs) out there kicking goals. And I am very proud of you on all fronts. And I know that this next Six to 12 months is going to be the start of an incredible new chapter in so many ways. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing you shine even brighter. Oh, thank you, Mills. And anyone listening, like, love to be be connected and just chat and whatever I can do to help and, and even just be on that journey with you. So it'd be great. And anyone listening that's interested in Inspiretech, just there's a website that'll be on there. I'm more interested in this personal relationship. I think the eating disorders ecosystem needs more of these conversations now. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just... You just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.